And so you see just God's people turning to God and responding to Him in every experience in life, whether it's good or bad. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in today for episode 24 of Working with the Word. So today, Jeff and I are talking about one of the most beloved sections of Scripture, the book of Psalms. This book has long been a source of hope, comfort, and encouragement for Christians. Maybe you even have a favorite psalm that you turn to in difficult times. And we believe that God intended us to use this book in this way. However, as we're trying to connect each section of the Bible with the whole story, we also need to see the psalms as part of what God uses to point us to Jesus. Remember, we began this series by reading Ephesians chapter 1 and seeing there that God had a plan from the beginning to reconcile sinners to himself through the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And so even though the Psalms isn't a story or a narrative per se, it's a very crucial piece of this whole story leading us to Jesus. And how so? That's what we want to explore today. So let's just for a moment think about where we have been And like Emerson had mentioned, talking about some of that narrative we've reviewed so far, it's a little bit different from what we see happening in the Psalms. Most of this whole story series has been through that scope of narrative, these stories that move the plot along through these different characters and events and scenarios. So thus far, to give a really short summary of Genesis through Esther, God created everything, including the pinnacle of creation, mankind. When mankind chooses to rebel and sin against God, He exiles them from the garden, but God still wants a relationship with his creation. So he promises to Abraham and his descendants to make him a nation, give him land, and through his offspring and seed, bless all the nations of the world. When Abraham's family find themselves enslaved in Egypt, God powerfully redeems his people through the Exodus. And after establishing a covenant with them, he sets them in the land, where eventually the tribes unite into a kingdom. However, sin once again causes major problems for the people leading the kingdom to divide in two. And eventually, each kingdom is sent into exile and captivity. God does remember his covenant with Abraham, as well as a covenant he's made with King David. And then eventually, the exiles return to the promised land. Throughout these narrative stories, we also have what we call prophetic writings and the books of poetry. While these are going to be read differently from the narrative sections of scriptures, you wouldn't read something like a poem or a proverb the same way you would read the story of Joseph. Or you wouldn't read necessarily the visions of Zechariah the same way you would read the kings of Israel. But as we look at these sections, these take place within the history of God's people. And these sections help us to learn about the people of God and God himself in these various times. So the Psalms are simply some prayers or songs of the people of God, some of which connect directly to these moments in Israel's history. You might think, for example, Psalm 51 being connected to the events of David's sin with Bathsheba and then being confronted by Nathan about that sin, where in Psalm 51, David is expressing his sorrow and repentance and confessing his sin to God and looking for God to create this new heart in him. So what are these psalms all about? And once again, how do they help us in understanding the whole story of the Bible? Emerson, tell us a little bit more about what these psalms are like and what we can see and just what to expect in the book of Psalms. I like the way you describe them as songs or prayers of the people of God, because 
That's basically what they are. Every psalm is, is coming from an experience that the author has, and they're turning to God in that experience. And so the book of Psalms shows us the collection and the variety of experiences that God's people have had throughout history. And I think that's what makes them so easy to connect to, is because we can connect to the emotions that they express on a lot of different levels. There's a psalm for every human experience and emotion. And let's just go through some of these really quickly to illustrate the types of psalms that we have. There's psalms of joy, the psalms that express praise and thanks for God. They show us how to worship and express reverence for God. Maybe when we think of psalms, this is maybe the first kind of psalm we think of, one that says, praise the Lord, you know, praise the Lord for all the good things he has done. Those are expressions of joy. Mm -hmm. You also have psalms of trust and hope. You see that whenever life is difficult or painful, a lot of times the psalmist will turn to God and express his reliance upon God. One of my favorite expressions like that is Psalm 31, verses 14 and 15, when it, it says, But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God, and my times are in your hand. I mean, that last phrase is basically saying, God, you're in control, and yeah. I, my life is dependent upon you. And so you have the, the psalmists turning to God in trust and hope. But you also have them expressing deep grief and laments and anxiety to God. I mean, if there's one thing we learn from the book of Psalms is that not everything in life is perfect and yeah. hunky-dory and rainbows and <laughs> butterflies. The Psalms show us that it's okay for us to express those things to God, that our worries, our deepest fears, our anxieties, even our doubts. Psalm 73 is a psalm that's written in a time when the psalmist doubted God and his goodness. He looked at the wicked and he said, the wicked are prospering, and here I am, a righteous man, and I'm suffering. And he took that doubt before God. He says, my feet almost stumbled and fell. And so it's okay for us to take those things to God. You also have psalms of guilt or confession. When we have failed others, we have sinned against God. You mentioned earlier Psalm 51 being David's psalm of penitence before the Lord after he sinned with Bathsheba. That's one of the clearest and classic examples of confession before God, yeah. when he says that my sin is ever before me, right? And mm -hmm. he feels this burden of, of sin, and he takes it to God. You also have psalms that express great anger and frustration. This category of psalms is probably the one we don't think the most about, or at, at all about. These are the imprecatory psalms, the, the psalms that ask God to judge the wicked, sometimes in shocking or even violent ways. Like in Psalm 58, verse 6, the psalmist prays that God will shatter his enemies' teeth in their mouths. <laughs> uh, and so you, we have to wrestle with, well, what, what is this meaning, and, and is it appropriate for us to pray this today? I think what we learn from the imprecatory psalms is that there is an appropriate way for us to express our anger when we see injustice and wickedness when we turn to God, we don't take vengeance on our own. We don't take matters into our own hands, but rather we, we let God handle it and we remember his justice and his righteousness. Yeah. And so you see just, you know, God's people turning to God and responding to him in every experience in life, whether it's good or bad, uh, always turning to God. And when it comes to what we're going to talk about today with how the Psalms point us to Jesus, Jesus came as a human being. And so as 
a human, he had these kinds of experiences. He felt these emotions that we feel as, emo- as human beings. And so we see him quoting the Psalms often, especially in reference to his own suffering. And I think this reflects his humanity. He experienced the spectrum of all these emotions uh, with the original authors and, and with us. So let's talk a little bit about the Psalms and how they relate to the story and the life of Jesus. So what we've done today is we've picked four psalms that we think connect well to Jesus, the events of his life, some things that maybe these are psalms that Jesus quotes himself. And so we're going to leave 146 of these off of the table for the (laughs) most part. But hopefully by focusing on these four, we're focusing on how they connect to the whole story, what this series is all about. We're going to begin with one of the most beloved psalms, and Psalm 23 is definitely one of the most beloved and well-known psalms. It's provided encouragement and comfort to many in times of difficulty. You're probably familiar with it, but listen to the words of David and remind ourselves what he has to say in the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I've been pretty slowly, but I have been somewhat working my way through this book called Methodical Bible Study by Robert A. Terania, uh, Terina. I'm not sure exactly how to say his last name, but he's been going through, and it's a very long book that's really related to, if you remember back how we started our podcast, talking about inductive study method type of stuff, observation, mm-hmm. interpretation, application, And in the beginning of the interpretation section, he kind of does a review of observation. He uses Psalm 23 as an example of a study text where we could do some observation and ask some questions to help guide our study. He makes 52 observations about these six verses. And then for each of those observations, gives about two to four questions per observation to consider for study. (laughs) Um, That's not the current approach that we're going to be bringing up with this text. Our goal is not to take these psalms and say, what does this particular word mean, or what is this going on right now? Again, our focus today is trying to find psalms that connect to Jesus and connecting to the whole story. So here's what we want you to notice. God is described as a good shepherd who loves and cares for his sheep. That's David, and that's you and me as well. While the words blessed or blessing are not used, we see the blessings of those who follow the good shepherd, how he makes me lie down in green pastures, he restores my soul, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. There's all of this where the good shepherd is providing for his sheep. We see that the sheep are helpless creatures who face many threatening circumstances. He talks about how he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. He's sitting at a table before his enemies, but yet even in there he can feel sheltered or protected or comforted because God, the good shepherd, is there to protect and guide his sheep all along the way. And there's definitely an emphasis on the good the psalmist feels because of his relationship with this good shepherd, how the Lord is his shepherd and how he will not want because of the fact that the Lord is his shepherd. 
He knows that goodness and mercy will follow him, and ultimately he looks forward to dwelling in the house of the Lord forever, that fellowship, that relationship with God. As we think about some connections to Jesus, in John's Gospel, he records seven of these I am statements of Jesus. The fourth one is found in John 10 and verse 11, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. You may have noticed I tried to include this phrase in all my descriptions about the psalm. We want to see that Jesus is the good shepherd. There in John chapter 10, it's described how he cares for his sheep, how his sheep know him and follow him, how he loves his sheep. And one way that he shows that he's the good shepherd is not just in his love and he loves them so that they'll give him a profit, but he loves them and is willing to even give up his life for them, to protect them, to face dangers and threats on their behalf when they you know, are otherwise defenseless. I'm sure I've heard this illustration before somewhere else, so I can't take credit for it or heard this description, but, you know, sheep aren't really armed with, like, claws or, you know, razor teeth or things like that. So if a bear comes at them, there's probably not really much of a, a return or rebuttal for them right, to defend they can't themselves. defend themselves a whole lot. Yeah, exactly. Maybe not even quite as well as like a ram or something like that that has horns even. And so a shepherd is very important for a sheep to find protection and safety. And Jesus even talks about in John chapter 10, you know, these higher tenants who they just are there to do the work, but when the moment of danger arises, they're going to flee. That's not what Jesus is like. The Jesus is that good shepherd who loves and cares for his sheep. So the shepherd illustration is a common illustration that's used for leaders of God's people throughout the whole Bible. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 11, Ezekiel chapter 34, really through the majority of that chapter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. But thinking about when we, the sheep, read Psalm 23, we find that familiar comfort that we know so well from reading this psalm, from hearing this psalm many times throughout our lives, because we know that our shepherd is the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that as David was, was writing that, being a shepherd himself, he, he didn't quite understand that, that Jesus would come and call himself the good shepherd. He mm-hmm. was just writing these words as an expression of, you know, God cares for me, but you see it so perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Right. And that really leads us to our second psalm, uh, which is also a psalm of David. So I want us to think about Psalm 22. Like Psalm 23 is written by David, but it's one of very different tone. It begins with a cry of deep despair and even an expression of feeling abandoned by God himself. I I just want to read the first half of the psalm, verses 1 through through 21, and then we'll make a couple comments about how it points us to Jesus. David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. 
You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet, I can count all my bones, they look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. Now, earlier we were talking about psalms of lament, when the psalmists are expressing their distress before the Lord. I mean, this is a clear example of that, right? Yeah. Here the psalmist is just describing in a very graphic, vivid way of what he feels as he is suffering. And this is a, a common theme in the lament psalms. Why is God allowing this to happen? When, when he asks the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not like he is challenging God's sovereignty or anything like that. He's just expressing the fact that he doesn't understand where God is right now, while he's he can't understand what's happening to him in the present. And you see that he is suffering innocently. I mean, he talks about how he has trusted in God, and so he doesn't deserve this kind of suffering. And yet, he he does not feel that God is near him to save him. And, and so as we think about how this fits into the whole story, there are so many connections to this psalm that point us to Jesus. Uh, especially his experience in crucifixion. Jesus actually quotes from this psalm when he's on the cross. In Matthew 27, verse 46, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? And so what Jesus is doing is he's taking the words, the expressions of grief and pain that David uh, expressed, and he says, this is how I feel right now as he's on the cross. Another connection you see in verse 8 when it says that he trusts in the Lord. This is what his enemies are saying. He trusts in the Lord, and so let God deliver him. And that's exactly what the enemies of Jesus were saying when Jesus was on the cross. They were saying, mocking him, you know, you say you're the son of God, then why don't you cry out to God and and he'll save you. Prove yourself to be the son of God. And just think about how that would have impacted Jesus. Certainly he was the son of God. Certainly he trusted in God. They just didn't understand that this is what had to happen. Verses 16 and 17 of the psalm mention that they pierced my hands and my feet. I mean, what better connection to make than to Jesus' death on the cross? Mm -hmm. This is literally fulfilled in the crucifixion as Jesus' hands and feet would have been pierced by the nails. And in verse 18, it says that they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's actually what the soldiers did with Jesus' clothes. Usually at crucifixion, they would strip someone completely naked, and the soldiers would get to keep the garments as kind of their spoils. And so in Matthew 27, 35, this is what they do. And so the point that we need to see here is that Psalm 22 is not necessarily a 
quote, predictive prophecy, like, you know, the Messiah is prophesied to be born in Bethlehem. That's a predictive prophecy, okay? It said it was going to happen, boom, it happened like that. This is more of a pattern that is to be fulfilled in the Messiah's own suffering as a human being. You see, in, in David's experience, he suffered these things, but Jesus suffered them in an even greater way when he came as the perfect innocent sufferer. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about a whole story connection, I think this psalm really puts into words some of the deepest emotional pains that anyone can feel. The feeling of abandonment, social humiliation, physical agony, excruciating pain, emotional distress. And when Jesus arrives in the New Testament, we see that he himself enters into those kinds of sufferings. He feels them. He can understand when we feel those same ways. So suffering is something that Jesus himself experienced. But I I didn't read the rest of the psalm just for the sake of time, but the rest of Psalm 22 shows that David's suffering is not the end of the story. God does deliver him. In fact, in verse 24, it says that God has not despised or hidden his face from him. And so I think this does also foreshadow Christ in a way that shows that that Jesus' suffering would not be the end, that God would end up delivering and vindicating him, definitely looking forward to Jesus' own resurrection and his ascension to God's right hand. So Psalm 22 is a, a, a really good picture of, of suffering and how that would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let's transition now to our third psalm, Psalm 118. With this psalm, we're not certain who the author is, but we can see it is someone who values the steadfast love of God. That phrase is used in verse 1. It's used three times, and once each in verse 2, 3, and 4. And it's almost kind of a a bookend, the bread of the psalm in verse 1, as well as in verse 29 there. So after we have our call to worship, we get into a section where the psalmist mainly focuses on finding refuge in God in times of distress. Really, verse 5 through 18 we could summarize in that way that there is some some need for, you know, in my distress I cry out to you, and, and I understand that you are my refuge, and I need to not find salvation or look for salvation in men or armies or people, but just look for that in God himself. But this leads then to an anticipation of walking through the gates to give praise and glory to God and give thanks to him, in verses 19 through 24, as well as 26 through 29, with kind of a short call for God's salvation to come there in verse 25, maybe thinking again about the distressing moment that the psalmist is in, whatever event this is taking place in. Now, the reason we bring up Psalm 118 is because there is a particular phrase that is used multiple times in the New Testament, either by Jesus himself or is used by New Testament writers or preachers to point back to Jesus and say that Jesus is a fulfillment of this particular statement. So this maybe does seem a little bit more somewhat predictive prophecy. I don't know if necessarily the psalmist knew that when they wrote that, but the New Testament is definitely applying it in that way. Before we get to that statement, though, notice verse 26 of Psalm 118. It says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what the crowds cheered as Jesus entered Jerusalem for the final time before his crucifixion, like we see in Matthew 21 and verse 9. They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. But they're also shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And even after pronouncing the woes upon the Pharisees in in Jerusalem, Jesus ends Matthew 23, verse 39, 
by saying, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There are some people who think that when Jesus is doing that there, it's similar to the way Jesus is using kind of the, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me of Psalm 22, where it's somewhat of a recalling the whole idea of the psalm rather than just Mm -hmm. that one verse, where, like you mentioned, Emerson, yes, there is great suffering in Psalm 22, but most people seem to think that Jesus is anticipating the deliverance that is also talked about in that psalm. Where here, some people think that what Jesus is doing by saying that there in Matthew twenty three thirty nine is you will face some distress in your life as my followers, but ultimately people will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We move from that phrase, though, that's used by Jesus and a couple times in the Gospel of Matthew to the phrase from verse 22 and verse 23 of Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Again, New Testament writers and preachers such as Peter use this to affirm that Jesus is the one who, even though rejected and crucified by the Jews, is the foundation of the new covenant through which all people find salvation. Peter talks about that in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, as well as in his own epistle in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 7. And Jesus uses this statement in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, after the parable of the wicked tenants. And in conjunction with this parable, even the Pharisees can clearly see that Jesus is the cornerstone and that they're the builders rejecting him. I always find that funny about that parable after Jesus tells it, or they kind of have this discussion amongst themselves. It seems like they're like, oh, he's talking about us. We're those wicked tenants who are killing people and beating people. And so as they see that, what they needed to do was repent and listen to Jesus. However, they decide that they would try to kill Jesus. I mean, they're just somewhat really pushing the prophecy or the farther, you know, along of this idea that they're going to continue to reject the cornerstone. What they should have done and what we must do is submit to Jesus and build off of him. Kind of the idea that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, talking about how we're building off the foundation of the apostles and prophets and even of the cornerstone himself, Christ. So what's our whole story connection here as we think about this particular psalm? Even before his arrival, it was known that Jesus would not be popular or well-liked by the leaders of his day. They wanted to try to remove him and his kingdom from the picture, but the plans of the Lord will not be overthrown. And the one that the people tried so hard to reject is still the one who reigns today. And truly, may we give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Our last psalm that we wanted to share with you today is Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a psalm that points us to Jesus again. In verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So that's just the first four verses of that psalm. And this is another psalm of David, much shorter, but it is no less important in the whole story. In fact, if you were to count all of the Psalms that are quoted or the times that the book of Psalms are quoted in the New Testament, you'd find that Psalm 110 is quoted more often than any of the other Psalms in the Bible. 
Wow. And so you see Jesus quoting it in a riddle to the Pharisees, kind of in that same context with, you know, the, the builder being rejected. Jesus poses a riddle to them. Who, who is this Lord that he, how can he be greater than, than David? Yeah. The book of Hebrews expounds extensively on this. The mm-hmm. apostles refer to it in their preaching in Acts. Um, you even uh, see references to Jesus in the New Testament reigning at the right hand of God. Those are references to Psalm 110. And when we think about this psalm in more detail, there are really two important connections to Jesus. Number one, in verse one, it speaks of a king. And you have this great King David. I mean, there is no king of Israel greater than him. But yet he speaks of a greater king coming after him. He says, the Lord, that would be Yahweh, saying to my Lord, my king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So a greater king is coming after David. And in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, Peter says in no uncertain terms that this was not about David, but it was written about Jesus. Jesus is this king. But he also speaks of a great priest that is coming in verse 4. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And if you read the book of Hebrews, you will see that Hebrews unpacks this verse almost word by word (laughs) to show how Jesus is this priest. And what's most interesting about this psalm is that it's speaking of someone who would fill both the role of the king and the priest which under the Old Covenant was explicitly forbidden. They were intentionally distinct because God did not want anyone having that kind of sovereign or that kind of absolute power. In fact, you can read in the book of 2 Kings about this king named Uzziah who tried to enter into the temple and offer incense, but as soon as he did that, the priest ushered him out because he started breaking out in leprosy. See, he didn't have, even though he was king, he didn't have the right to do that. So Psalm 110 would have definitely been a head-scratcher for some, you know, the faithful Jews. And so what's our whole story connection when we look at Psalm 110? The Holy Spirit had David write this poem praising a coming king and priest. And it's easy for us to make the connection to Jesus because those connections are already made for us in the New Testament. Yeah. But if you can imagine living in the time before Jesus, in a time when the leaders did not have both the role of the priest and the king, then you'd be wondering, who is this person going to be? And this is just one part of what the Psalms have been doing all along, showing faithful people and their response to God's promises and their circumstances and looking forward to what God is going to do in the future. So Psalm 110 is a psalm that points to Jesus as our king and the priest who mediates on, on our behalf. So as we're coming towards the end of this whole story episode today, this one relating to the book of Psalms, usually we've been using this illustration of a TV series that's going to end each episode with that to-be-continued screen. I kind of see today's episode about the Psalms as one of those more, it's about character development than rather about zombie-filled action. If you're fans of The Walking (laughs) Dead, you maybe are familiar with those episodes. Sometimes those episodes are kind of boring and drags. Uh, we're recording this at the beginning of March and my wife's watching that show and I think that was kind of what this past Sunday's episode was like. But 
understand that sometimes character development is good to have and to understand and Mm -hmm. to see, to point and to focus on something. Again, there are 146 other psalms we haven't even touched. I guess we kind of referenced a few of them in the introduction to different types of psalms. I mean, if we were to touch all of the psalms today, this would be more like one of those weird musical singing episodes that seems to happen in sitcoms randomly. (laughs) But the point that we want to see from today's episode is how songs of praise, desperation, thanksgiving, all these emotions... Some of these are able to point us to the Messiah, the Good Shepherd, the Sufferer who finds deliverance, the Cornerstone, the King, and the Priest. We want to observe how some of these psalms show God had a plan from the beginning to reconcile sinners to himself through the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of his Son, Jesus Christ. So in this episode, Jeff and I picked four psalms and very briefly showed how Christ is pictured in each one, kind of as a character development in the story. So now it's your turn. We want you to pick one psalm, maybe you can pick at random, or maybe just pick your favorite. And after reading it two to three times, see if you find anything that points you to Jesus. Maybe it's a verse that you, it rings a bell and you you remember, oh, this is quoted in the New Testament. Or maybe it's just a characteristic of God that you also see in Jesus. Maybe it's Psalm 27 and it says, the Lord is my light. And you think about how Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Mm -hmm. So pick a psalm, read through it two to three times, and see how it leads you to Jesus. And you might be surprised at what you learn. But use this time to draw closer to God and build your faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for tuning into Working with the Word today. We'll continue covering the whole stories through the various sections of scriptures, staying in the wisdom literature, and looking at the books of Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Just like the book of Psalms, these are rich with valuable material for Christians, but we want to do our best to keep focus on how they relate and help us understand the whole story. Until next time, if there are questions, topics, or books of the Bible you'd like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.